All right, we are back. I mentioned in the first segment uh, this interesting juxtaposition of two articles in, in two of our favorite science magazines. Actually, New Scientist is our favorite science magazine. That's why we quote from it so often. But we do like Scientific American very much. But oh, what a lesson it is to lay these two similar articles side by side and compare them. One learns a lot about, uh, well, about who's doing the writing and, uh, and where the writer's located. The Scientific American article was written by Susanna Martinez-Conde and Stephen L. Macknick. They titled it Magic and the Brain, with the subtitle, Magicians Have Been Testing and Exploiting the Limits of Cognition and Attention for Hundreds of Years. Neuroscientists are just beginning to catch up. Which isn't nearly as snappy as the article in New Scientist, authored by Devin Powell, who's evidently not a scientist himself, but is a writer. He titled his article, Magicology, with the subtitle, If you really want to know how the human brain works, ask somebody who knows how to tie it in knots. The articles are quite similar. They're, they're on exactly the same topic. But the one written by the neuroscientists has a flaw, which we can sort of tell you about from doing a lot of radio, that sometimes academicians demonstrate. Scientists sometimes are so anxious to get it exactly right, dotting every I, crossing every T, that they get a little too wordy. Spend a little too much time describing each tree instead of giving you an overview of the forest. And don't get me wrong, it's a good article. It just isn't as good as <laughs> the one in New Scientist. Now, what a science writer can do is weed through what he thinks is important and be concise. It's been a motto for this radio program that, uh, that sometimes a little bit of imprecision can save you tons of explanation, which is very valuable when your time is limited. Our time on this program is always limited. I think I'll give a demonstration of what I'm talking about by reading uh, two uh, excerpts from each article, which are basically on the same topic. If you're contemplating writing an article or getting a radio program, uh, this example will illustrate quite a bit. From Scientific American. Neuroscience is becoming familiar with the methods of magic by subjecting magic itself to scientific study. In some cases, showing for the first time how some of, the, some of its methods work in the brain. Many studies of magic conducted so far confirm what is known about cognition and attention from earlier work in experimental psychology. A cynic might dismiss such efforts. Why do yet another study that simply confirms what is already well known? But such criticism misses the importance and purpose of the studies. By investigating the techniques of magic, Neuroscientists can familiarize themselves with methods that they can adapt to their own purposes. Indeed, we believe that cognitive neuroscience could have advanced faster had investigators probed magicians' intuitions earlier. Even today, magicians may have a few tricks up their sleeves that neuroscientists have not yet adopted. Let's compare that to how Devin Powell put it. After years of ignoring magic, Researchers are starting to realize that the methods magicians use to manipulate the human mind might hold some important insights into how it works. We're all thinking about the same questions, said Christoph Koch, a neuroscientist at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena. We just come at the problems from different angles. Okay, now whose article do you want to read? 
It's curious. The articles are quoting from the same people, even referring to the same website, and yet the article that is shorter says more. Scientific American gets into cognitive illusions, referring to change blindness, inattention blindness, choice blindness, and illusory correlation. They even go into details and examples of what that is, but it's a little too much. Said New Scientist, A good starting point for the science of magic is the magician's own classification of their art into three broad types of trick, misdirection, illusion, and forcing. And since this is a worthy topic, an interesting couple of articles, let's go on a bit about it, following the lead of New Scientist. Misdirection, illusion, and forcing. Misdirection is the art of diverting the audience's attention away from what magicians call the method, the act of deception itself. This relies on the fact that our brains have very limited, a very limited supply of attention, in some cases quite a bit less than others. We mentioned on this program the famous example in the past of, uh, of researchers who filmed a basketball game, and when, when people are asked to pay attention, carefully count the number of bounces in the ball, they frequently fail to notice that in the middle of the video, a man dressed in a gorilla suit marches through the crowd, beats his chest, and keeps on going. And when it comes to this art of misdirection, this is why hand motions are frequently used by magicians and also pickpockets to take your attention off where the magician or pickpocket would not like it to be. And interestingly, something that really helps uh, magicians is humor. Apparently, when people are laughing, time is standing still. Although it's not clear to anybody why it is that laughter disengages our attention so effectively. When it comes to illusion, magicians have uh, relied on the fact that um, our perceptions are not really about capturing a full picture of reality, but about taking snapshots of the world and making the rest up. It takes our, uh, it takes our retinas about 100 milliseconds to send a signal up to the brain. And to compensate for this lag, our brain predicts what the world will look like in the near future and acts on the prediction rather than the real information at its disposal. This is very useful in situations such as driving a car. And when it comes to forcing, this is really interesting. This is described as one of the great mysteries of magic as yet unexplained by cognitive neuroscience. The degree to which a magician can control someone's mind tends to be far greater than anything scientists can come up with in the lab. Noted Ron Resnick of the, of the uh, University of British Columbia in Vancouver, who investigated the old pick-a-card, any-card routine, that they can get 70 to 80% of their subjects to pick a specific card. They'll take a deck, load it with maybe 10 out of the 52 cards being the same, and even though the cards fly by in an instant, this moderate bias, as it was described, has a powerful unconscious effect, which is interesting. Every fifth card is the same card, and yet 80% of the people will pick that card. And apparently uh, another reason forcing works is due to a brain glitch that magicians have known about long before neuroscientists, and that's false memory. During a trick, a magician will often describe what he's just done in a way that manipulates people's recollection of it. He may tell you, now, what I've just done is such and such. When what he's just done is something quite different. In the Scientific American article, they give a rather startling example uh, in the lab investigating this sort of thing. Experimental subjects were shown pairs of photographs and asked to choose the more attractive image. 
After each choice, the experimenter turned the photographs face down, then used a sleight of hand to swap some of the chosen images for the rejected ones. Their choice was then turned face up, and they were asked to explain their preference. Even when the choice shown was actually the rejected image, many subjects constructed an explanation for their choice, which causes neuroscientists to say that the urge for people to fit what they falsely think are their own choices into an intentionally consistent narrative can thus often supplant the memory of their actual selections. This, of course, should not surprise anyone who can remember the Ronald Reagan presidency. Reagan always seemed to be convinced that his most recent explanation for why he was doing what he was doing was the correct one. At one point, Newsweek published five conflicting testimonies by President Reagan about the Iran-Contra affair, which, of course, were all mutually exclusive. The magazine just published them and said, okay, you pick one. But this ability of the brain to come up with an explanation for why something just happened is rather profound. I was tempted to bring somebody on this program who was an eyewitness to something I did in medical school, wherein I surprised myself with an ability to come up with a really cockamamie explanation for something. And I, I guess I'll just explain what happened. Well, in medical school, you're, you're often tired, you're studying late, you're maybe not eating well, whatever. I'm not sure exactly what factors led up to this event. I'm still not sure decades later. But here's what happened. We were out in the courtyard between classes, and my friends Dave and Elaine were sitting on a bench a few feet away. I was leaning up against a pole. I was sort of squatted down, leaning back against the pole, and another fellow student came up and asked me a question. I slid my back up the pole, so I was standing up straight, looked at him, and started to answer. That's about all I remember. Things got sort of dim. There was kind of a break in the action. The next thing I recall was my pal Dave leaning over me, shaking me and going, are you all right? I was looking up at Dave at this point, seeing blue sky and clouds behind him. And what came out of my mouth was, yeah, sure. He just decided to lay down. He looked at me somewhat incredulous and said, okay. I then shut my eyes and continued to lay on the grass. I lay there for a while and sort of contemplated what I just said and the fact that I could feel grass underneath me and realized that in spite of what I just said, I had no idea why I was lying on the grass. I sat up, looked at Dave and Elaine and said, what just happened? They said, well, as we were watching, you were talking to Kirk and you sort of slid off the pole and fell back, said Dave. It didn't look like you meant to do it. No, I said, I, I have no idea why I'm lying here. It turns out it has something to do with the fact that I was just sleep-deprived and the blood was in my thighs, squeezed out when I was sort of squatting there. And when I stood up, the blood just didn't get to my brain. But I marveled then, and I still marvel now, at how quickly I had a comforting explanation. How I falsely thought my own choice fit into an internally consistent narrative. In this instance, my brain offered an explanation, and for a moment, I was believing it myself. Anyway, in the same manner that optical illusions provided a lot of clues for neuroscientists, I'm sure the study of magic is going to be just a very fertile area to figure out how our brain works. The thing is, I think it's going to be magicians teaching the neuroscientists, not the neuroscientists teaching much of the magicians. Two good articles. See if you can't read them both.
Our thanks to Sean Minton. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett, and you've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. Weird science.